Hello, well-being friends, and welcome to the Path to Well-Being in Law podcast, an initiative of the Institute for Well-Being in Law. My name is Chris Newbold. I'm Executive Vice President of Alps Malpractice Insurance, and we're excited to kick off our 2023 uh, menu of, of speakers. And as most of you know, our goal here on the podcast has always been to introduce you to thought leaders doing meaningful work in the well-being space uh, and within the legal profession. And in the, in the process, build and nurture a network of well-being advocates intent on creating a culture shift within the profession. And I have, am always excited to introduce my co-host, Bree Buchanan. Bree, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Chris. Um, and I will just say, even better that now I am immediate past president of I will. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of exciting news for us on the on the Institute front that after two really incredible launch years for the Institute for Wellbeing and Law, um, you know, Bree Buchanan was our, our president and in many respects also our executive director. And she was the one who steered us to just a, a, an incredible launch of the organization. And uh, I know on behalf of our board of directors, Bree, uh, a heartfelt thank you for that thank commitment. You. You're not going anywhere, right? And I know that you're going <laughs> to no. be actively engaged as we continue uh, to to move uh, ourselves forward. But um, again, it's it's been a, a real honor watching Bree uh, lead this movement in the United States, and and uh, and I know uh, again her contributions. Uh, there are many on the horizon, uh, sure sure to come. Thank you, Chris. That's so kind. Yeah. <laughs> it was a pleasure. And so the, the other part of that is then, you know, who who did the baton go to, right? And and Bree, do you want to you want to drop that news? <laughs> Absolutely. And so I looking at who would be the best person, you know, we uh brought along, I reached out to Chris and he was gracious enough to to agree to take the baton from me. And so I've gladly passed that on. And um, Chris is just the right person, the right leader at this time, as we really start to develop a long-term vision. And that's something, um, he is a visionary and that's something that he is really great at doing. So after two years, it was time to, to have a switch of leadership. And so um, Chris has stepped into that place, my, my podcast co-host, <clears throat> and I'm really excited about what the future holds. Yeah, and it's, you know, again, it's an exciting time for us, Bree was uh, really uh, visionary in, in getting all of our leaders together back in August to uh, kind of launch a strategic plan for us. And, you know, Bree, I, I think it's it's safe to say that, uh, you know, the pillars that we created in terms of the areas that we wanted to focus our work and just want to take a quick minute to ensure that all of our well-being advocates are aware of kind of where that's going, right? We, oh, we've done such a great job, I think, on the on the raising of education and awareness around well-being. In fact, this is a perfect time to make a plug for uh, our upcoming Well-Being and Law Week, which is set for May 1st through the 5th this year. Um, again, uh, contact us at IWILL if you're interested in plugging into what will be just a fantastic menu of activities going on each day uh, during that week. So education and awareness, I know, Bree, you've been very vocal about our need to continue to be a strong voice, uh, particularly when we think about systemic opportunities for change in favor of well-being, right? And so um, we're looking at amplifying our advocacy voice. Um, we're, we're definitely also looking at on our strategic plan, 
the ability, which is the kind of the focal point of our podcast today, which is elevating our research and the data accumulation to understand, you know, where the opportunities are, how we outline our priorities and where we go next. So we'll, we'll obviously spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about research. Um, and then the other, the last part that I think is, is noteworthy is, is IWILL's opportunity to be a facilitator of dialogue amongst stakeholders, right? And whether that's well-being directors at, uh, at at large law firms, whether it's solo practitioners, regulators, uh, professional liability carriers, there's a real opportunity for IWILL uh, to bring these stakeholder groups together to advance action-oriented plans to continue to move toward our ultimate mission of the of of the uh, of the culture shift. So um, again, really excited about the 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 kind of the future of where IWILL is and where we're going today, but. Let's uh, let's turn to the podcast today, and again, I previewed a, it a little bit. Um, that I'm I'm really thrilled today to kind of broaden our scope a little bit, and and actually look beyond the the U.S. border. Um, and we're really excited to to welcome uh, Professor Natalie Cadeau, uh, who's an associate professor and researcher with the Shearbrook University's uh, Business School. Um, Bree, I'd, I'd love it if you could. Uh, I know that you've you've met Natalie before, and uh, and, and you know, talk about groundbreaking research related to the Canadian legal profession. Uh, we're really excited uh, about the conversation that's that, that's on tap for today. Absolutely. And so, um, yeah, I had the pleasure of meeting Natalie at a conference in Canada a few years ago. And it really, what it seems, it's a Federation of Law Societies conference, which is the bar there is organized a little bit differently than the United States. But we all came together. This was a focus on regulators. And out of that conference, you know, there were so many ideas around well-being for lawyers. And it truly became like an incubator for great ideas. And so it is so exciting to be able to report and bring Natalie in to talk about what all has transpired and has come out of that one conference. And then just the beauty of being able to bring together uh, passionate advocates in the law and see what can come from that. So just a little bit more about Natalie. She has um, been leading a national research project and is the principal investigator on mental, then this project is around the mental health of Canadian lawyers. And the project, the research was conducted on 7,300 lawyers, uh, which is a really great uh, population group to get data from. Um, and they, it's a two phase project have completed the first phase and published that uh, report and recommendations. And we're going to hear some more about that from Natalie. So we are thrilled to bring Natalie Cadeau to you, to our listeners. And Natalie, one of the things that we always start off with is just to learn a little bit about the background of our speakers, our, um, our guests, to find out what has drawn you to this area. So how did you become interested in researching the legal community? Because you're not a lawyer. Uh, but uh, an academic and a researcher, and what makes you so passionate about this work? In fact, you know, Brie, uh, it was at the intersection of several events that led me to become involved in the topic of mental health among lawyers and later uh, among other legal professionals. Um, not many uh, people know this, but I will tell you uh, a confidence, uh, Brie. Okay. I was in law school uh, myself when I started uh, my university. 
And um, I left after only a few days. And I have to admit that it was, uh, it was really difficult. Uh, and uh, I have to admit that the culture uh, particularly and the pressure to perform and the, 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 the competitiveness between the, the, the student, for example, killed uh, my, my career intention at the end. Wow. And nevertheless, it was just a coincidence that I, I became interested in the mental health of legal professionals because after leaving law school, I began studying in industrial relations, uh, particularly related to my interest in the labor law. Uh, you know, um, and then uh, I, I did a master's uh, degree in professional ethics, and I realized uh, that professionals in a regulated profession are subject to particular stressors on a daily basis, such as decision making in complex situations, uh, professional accountability, uh, ethics, and ethical call uh, pressure and uh, so uh, I therefore did a PhD thesis to better understand these stressors and my my thesis demonstrated that the the models uh, the stressors that we included to understand occupational stress or wellness uh, in um, in the knowledge-based economy do not capture the complexity of the professional realities of regulated professionals specifically. So once my PhD was completed, I was determined to go back to the real world mm -hmm. and to better understand. And as I began my career as an academic researcher in 2013, uh, I observed a very significant increase in requests uh, to the Quebec Bar Member Assistance Program. And uh, I, I therefore conclude, uh, concluded a partnership with the Barreau de Québec to, to understand uh, why. Uh, and later with the Federation of Law Societies of Canada and the Canadian Bar Association. So in short, uh, to answer your question, uh, these last 10 years have been invested in the legal community and there are so many challenges, so I could never think of being interested in another profession. So it's a coincidence that I went uh, through law school, but yeah. You can understand that today with the benefit of this perspective, uh, it Absolutely. allows uh, me to make sense uh, of this trajectory and to be sensitive to the challenges that professionals face from the moment they enter law school. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, today today we're obviously ta we're talking about the first comprehensive research on mental health in the Canadian legal profession. Natalie, t tell us about how we got there. Right? How how what was who commissioned the wellness study? What led to it being a priority? We're just always kind of interested in the kind of, how did you get to the point of idea to uh, to publication? Uh, following a first study conducted between 2014 and 2019 in Quebec, uh, in the province in Canada, uh, in which more than uh, 2,700 Quebec lawyers participated, we were able to establish that a significant proportion of lawyers experience uh, psychological distress, and many are also exposed to uh, professional burnout. Uh, and uh, 
we developed a data collection tool that included uh, several stressors uh, specific to the practice of law, such as pressure related to billable hours, for example. And uh, I was then invited, uh, as Brie explained before, uh, by the Federation of Law Societies of Canada in October 2019 to present these results to all Canadian law societies, and it was the first study of, the, of its kind uh, in Canada. And this presentation uh, was used after to initiate uh, further discussions uh, with the Federation of Law Societies of Canada, but also with the Canadian Bar Association to conduct a Canada-wide study involving all law societies for, for, for this project in two phases. The first phase uh, was founded by these partners, and the phase two, which uh, has just begun, uh, is founded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Hmm. Great. Digging into a little of the details about the survey, um, who did you include in that, which I think is interesting for Americans. Um, how many joined in and why did you feel it was so important to include these different groups beyond just uh, a lawyer? I uh, yes, you as you explained before, more than uh, seven thousand and three hundred uh, legal professionals, mostly lawyers, participated in the first phase, which was published uh, in November uh, twenty twenty-two. Uh, but our sample also included young professionals in articling uh, paralegals. It's a uh, paralegals in Ontario uh, and notaries uh, in Quebec and. Um, even though there are fewer of them compared to the lawyers, uh, we choose to include these different groups for two reasons. The first, because daily life in many legal environments is difficult and not only for lawyers. And we want to reflect this reality and be as inclusive as possible. And second, because we also want to understand the dynamics, sometimes common, but sometimes slightly different, that may exist within each of these groups. Uh, and uh, finally, uh, articling students are the future, are future lawyers, and we felt it was very important to include them in order to evaluate different mental health indicators in this population, but also to understand the determinant of mental health. And you know, these young people are the future of the profession. It is therefore essential to pay attention to them uh, now in order to prioritize action. Absolutely. And Natalie, just for our listeners, could you tell us Americans, what is an articling student? Um, it's uh, the last moment before the end, the entry in the profession, uh, you have, uh, it's, uh, it's the last part of the training, uh, the academic training at the end of your university, when mm -hmm. you entry in the law society, you have uh, a period uh, when we during this period, you're supervised by uh, another lawyer, like mentoring, but it's not a mentoring. It's it's a condition to entry in the profession. Great, thanks. Thanks for that. Natalie, you measured rates of psychological distress, depression, anxiety, burnout, and suicidal ideation. 
What was most concerning about your findings? Um, you know, all health indicators are very high, but we anticipated this uh, before to start. You know, prior to the pandemics, uh, to the pandemic, Chris, uh, mm -hmm. indicators uh, related to mental health among legal professionals were uh, of concern in the 2019 uh, study that we made in the province of Quebec, the indicators uh, related to mental health were already uh, higher than in the general population, around 40% uh, of psychological distress, for example, compared to 25% uh, in the working populations. So uh, not surprisingly, uh, the indicators that we measured in the last study are not only I, but they are even higher than in the general population. Mm -hmm. So a majority now of legal professionals are experiencing psychological distress with a proportion of 59.4%. So mm -hmm. it's more than 10 to 20% uh, of the estimates made in the Canadian workforce during the same period. And I think... Uh, Across the, 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 the different uh, indicators uh, that we measured, uh, uh, over, uh, I think that we have a, a very, um, we have many concern about the percentage of legal professionals who experienced uh, suicidal thoughts since the beginning of their professional practice. It's uh, just over 24%. And mm. it's a high proportion compared wow. with the general yeah. population because when we compare with physician, for example, for the same question for uh, Canadian physicians, uh, it's around uh, 19%. So it's, uh, it's very high. And, you know, beyond the, the health indicators uh, and while health issues are very important and of concern for sure, I believe it's also important to highlight other consequences that sometimes arise from these wellness issues, namely commitment to the profession and the intention to leave it. Mm. Um, the, the work of professionals is a fulfilling environment and wellness issues can challenge future career paths. For example, more than half of respondents co consider that they could stop practicing law and take another job at the same pay level at the moment of the data collection. And less than a half of participants Say said that they they look forward to starting a day's work. Uh, more mm. than one out of four of legal professionals frequently dream of working in another profession, mm. and one out of three with less than ten years of experience regret having chosen their profession. So oh I think it's uh, it's very important to highlight this kind of uh, collateral damage uh, following wellness issues. Absolutely. And I just want to tell our listeners, we will provide you or are providing you a link to the study. It's a beautiful document with lots of graphics. Um, and um, so a, an easy and helpful read so that you'll have a link to all of that. I wanted to just dig a little bit deeper on another topic, Natalie, which is around help. What we talk about in the United States is help seeking. You know, the willingness of somebody who's experiencing one of these problems to actually 
reach out and get some professional help for it. And in the, the really the foundational research for the well-being movement in the United States, it was very clear from the answers that both lawyers and law students were extremely reluctant, unwilling to seek help for psychological issues that they were experiencing. A lot of it around the role of stigma, but what did, what are you seeing or what did you see with Canadian lawyers and students here or the, the entire population that you researched? It's a very good question, Brie, and a relevant question because it's one thing to, to live some or, or some experience psychological distress, but if the professional don't seek help, uh, it, it will, it can be, it it can lead to uh, to to worst problematic like depression, depressive symptoms, anxiety problem, and uh, the use of uh, the the lead to coping uh, negative coping strategies, for right. example, and. And uh, while a large proportion of legal professionals in Canada have sought help in the past, many others have been not able to do so. Uh, when we ask, have you ever felt the need to seek professional help for psychological health problems, but not done so, almost half of professionals who provided an answer on this question say, stated uh, they did not seek help despite needing. Mm. Um, this is especially important because you know, of this percentage, two out of three of professionals experience suicidal ideation during their practice. Oh. And why? Many, we, we ask different questions related to the confidence in the uh, the assistance program linked to their law society, confidence related to uh, the assistance program of their organization, but may, we we ask people why, despite this this confidence or beyond the confidence that you have in your assistance program, why? You, and many responded and said it will pass. Uh, other did not have the energy to engage in such a process, uh, lacked uh, the time, the financial resources. Uh, some professionals were unsure, yes, whether professional help was appropriate. And we can exclude that seeking or not seeking help may also be the result of a sense of stigma associated with mental health issues and sometimes limits professionals from seeking help. And you know, in the studies, specifically on this subject, we measured personal stigma and we developed um, a scale about the, the personal stigma and the perceived stigma. So we asked many questions uh, to uh, the professional related to their perception about professionals in their profession with mental health issues. And we asked after the same question, what do you think that people in your profession think about that? The same question. And what do you think the gap is, Brie? The gap is just over 40%. Mm. That's a huge gap. This gap is related to the fact that few professionals have a negative perception of professionals or colleagues who experience mental health issues during their practice. But many perceive that 
people in their profession have a negative perception of mental health issues. And there is a significant gap, not supported by real and measurable facts, but it does create a significant barriers to seeking help. And I think that we have to discuss about, about wellness. Uh, we have to discuss about uh, well-being in the profession. And I think we have, again, a lack of communication about health. And uh, I think this, this uh, stigma, yes, is uh, feed by professional culture, but also on individual beliefs uh, fueled by a lack of collective communication related to wellness. So I think we have to, to talk about it in whole settings and raise awareness to break down taboos. Yeah, it's very, it, 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 it's fascinating. I think one of the things that, that I, it, it, I don't think it's a surprise to me, but it's interesting how much the research that you've done with respect to the Canadian legal profession really in fact mirrors the US legal profession, right? And you know, when you hear the things about, um, you know, again, the, the, the stress, the depression, um, the, the, um, the regret of going into the legal profession in the first place, right? You, you just hear some of the same themes, which, which again, kind of moves us to the question of, you know, why is that? And, and what, are, what was expected, what, what, what the realities are, what's driving the realities. And, and, and I think it's just very interesting that, you know, two countries, two different legal um, systems, so to speak, same profession, same realities, right? When it comes to the challenges of, of, uh, of well-being. Let's, let's do this. Let's take a quick break here from one of our sponsors and uh, want to delve in, delve in even further uh, to some of the other, I think, key findings um, from, from your really impressive uh, research of legal professionals in Canada. We'll be right back. Meet Vera, your firm's virtual ethics risk assessment guide. Developed by Alps, Vera's purpose is to help you uncover risk management blind spots from client intake to calendaring to cybersecurity and more. I require only your honest input to my short series of questions. I will offer you a summary of recommendations to provide course corrections if needed and to keep your firm on the right path. Generous and discreet, Vera is a free and anonymous risk management guide from Alps to help firms like yours be their best. Visit Vera at alpsinsurance.com forward slash Vera. Welcome back and we are uh, really honored uh, today to I'll be talking to Professor Natalie uh, Cadeau, who was at, you know, really at the forefront of the first comprehensive national study of its kind in Canada when it comes to uh, well-being. Uh, again, Natalie, thank you so much for, for joining us. Y you researched the factors also in your study that impacted well-being, both work and non-work related. And I'm just curious of, of kind of what you found um, in terms of the things that are you know, additive to well-being and also, you know, corrosive and detracting from a legal professional's uh, well-being. What were, what were some of your findings when you, when you looked at the kind of the research kind of underneath the surface? It's a very uh, important question. And, you know, we measured in this study more than 
100 risk and productive factors, uh, including different uh, individuals, social and organizational and professionals uh, factors. And regarding risk and protective factors for well-being in the organizational sphere, it is important to emphasize uh, that the results indicate that risk factors have a preponderant weight on health. And this means that actions aimed at adding resources will often have a limited or insignificant effects on health. Conversely, any action uh, aimed at acting on risk factors will have a very important effect. Among the risk factor, emotional demands are the most important risk factor for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, a majority of lawyers are confronted uh, with the, these demands, uh, and they are not like any other's demands. They have a short-term effects, but also a longer-term effects. Uh, uh, among uh, the... the the, the effects uh, we, we can we include um, a part in, in the report about the compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma for for experience many professionals. Um, we uh, also uh, identify constative uh, overload, uh, work insecurity, and our work. Uh, that are. Uh, um, the, the main stressors uh, in the in the in the the working condition, um, the result uh, also indicate that professionals who have available hour targets to meet uh, that are more likely to experience uh, mental health issues, and this is related to the pressure felt by many professionals uh, to meet billing targets. Uh, but also to the fact that billable hours represent an average of actual hour work in the sample. And you know, the percentage is around 62%. So it's just 62% of your overall hour work in, in a week. So, um, and if the risk factor are not surprised, we founded many interaction between some of these risk factors, which contribute to generate explosive cocktails for practitioners. For example, related specifically to billable hours, professionals who have a billable hour targets uh, within the first two years of practice are particularly at risk. And uh, professionals who are exposed to high emotional demands and have a billable hours target to meet are also uh, particularly uh, at risk. Uh, so um, it's uh, the risk that we identify and among the protective factors, uh, because I think despite the impact is uh, the impact of protective uh, factor is uh, less that when we compare with the risk factor, I think it's uh, important to, to talk about uh, these uh, protective uh, factors uh, in combination uh, to uh, the diminution, the, the reduction of uh, risk factor. 
Um, we found that case skills like assertiveness, for example, it's the ability to set limit and say no, and uh, psychological detachment are particularly relevant to protect wellness in law. And we also found that autonomy, consistency of values, uh, career opportunities, um, telework or the adaptation to telework uh, and the support from colleagues are among uh, the main important factors uh, to protect uh, the well-being uh, of uh, lawyers. Yeah, and I was just interested in seeing, hearing how much that is uh, sort of rhymes with what's going on in the United States in regards particularly to younger lawyers and what the research found here too about them being so disproportionately impacted in the early years of the practice and making that a focal point really for all of us in um, providing resources and, and solutions in this. Another thing on, you know, I will, the Institute has really been, had made a point of highlighting how lawyers and legal professionals of varying race, ethnicity, gender, and identification as LGBTQ may be impacted more dramatically than sort of the historical uh, figures that we've had in the legal profession and leadership of that. How did that play out in Canada? What did you find in regards to those different, um, different groups? Beyond the health indicators, which are higher uh, for these professionals, we also uh, found that these professionals are particularly impacted by discrimination in the practice of law. Uh, and uh, on this point, we uh, included in the study uh, many questions uh, related to the the live, uh, it's the, um, the experience stigma, but it's, it's the, the concept of discrimination uh, in the practice of law. Uh, so uh, it includes uh, 10 or 11 questions like, I have been discriminated against at work. Uh, uh, we, we ask the question at work because I, I identify as LGBTQ2S plus or because I'm indigenous or because I live with a disability. And after we ask 11 questions, I have been discriminated against. Uh, I have been uh, ignored or taken less seriously. Uh, I have been given fewer career opportunities, uh, for example. So uh, we include this kind of questions. And you will be surprised, but... And I, I, I asked many questions in my team about it, and we found the answer. Why LGBTQ2S plus community felt less discriminate? I was really surprised of this result, and I found why. It's because close than a half of professionals who identify as LGBTQ2S plus uh, as a member of LGBTQ2S plus community, don't discuss about it in their workplace. So this is the reason why 
people don't know in their organization. So they don't feel discriminated related to this. But I think it raised the importance uh, of this because uh, in the, uh, uh, you know, uh, when you, you, you come back of uh, your weekend, for example, and you discuss about your weekend with your colleague and you are not able to discuss that. I, I was uh, with my, uh, my husband uh, to go skiing, for example, because you don't share any information about your personal life in your uh, workplace. I think it's an issue because we, we pass more time with our colleagues in the week uh, compared to our family so uh, I think it's a very uh, it's very important and not surprising the main group the 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 higher uh, proportions of uh, discrimination are observed among women uh, again today in uh, 2023 wow. and um, in uh, among uh, professionals uh, with uh, a disability uh, it was uh, an area of concern too Natalie your research group one of the things I, I, I love about when when folks engage in research is not just the identification of the data, but also the endeavor to identify solutions. What, what were some of the most impactful recommendations that you believe were made as a result of the research and in the report? Uh, we made uh, 10, made, uh, 10 main uh, recommendations uh, at the end of this report. Um, these uh, recommendations are uh, encored uh, in the data that we obtained in this project. Um, and uh, the first one is to improve preparation of future professionals and provide them support to deal with psychological health issues. And it, it, it means and ensure, for example, a balance between theory and practice in university or in college curriculum, but also to include the critical transversal skills in the education of legal professionals that will will benefit them throughout their professional life, like time management, for example, or uh, emotion management, you know, and promote also a healthy lifestyles uh, to, uh, to inc and increase awareness about mental health issues. But uh, beyond the preparation of future professionals, uh, we also suggest to improve supports and guidance available at the entry into profession. Mm -hmm. at and uh, it, I think it will, it will, um, it will means for uh, for law society to evaluate the possibility to create a professional integration plan in the first uh, or two first years uh, of practice. Uh, promote also mentoring uh, for those entering in the profession. Uh, and for organization, it will mean re remove billable hour targets for professionals in their first two years of practice, just to give the chance 
for the young practitioners to uh, develop the, uh, the, the, the case skills they need uh, to be uh, well in their profession after. Um, we also uh, develop a recommendation around the importance to improve the continuing professional development offered to legal professionals. Uh, because uh, we've seen that um, we don't have at this point an evolving vision of professional development needs throughout one's career. And I think it's very important to develop this kind of evolving vision, but also to better structure mandatory trainings hour for professional and develop a training aligned with risk factors. Because, you know, in many professions, uh, stress decrease and psychological distress decrease when you uh, have uh, higher, uh, better experience uh, and when you progress in your career. But it's not always the case uh, for uh, legal practitioners and for lawyers. And why? It's because it's the, the, the overlap of stressors and uh, the stability of some stressors throughout the career too. So I think that we have to work on this uh, to uh, improve the professional developments. We also suggest we are relevant uh, to uh, evaluate the implementation of uh, alternative work organization models. Because I asked, I, I, I when I give conference uh, everywhere, uh, I, I, I exchange uh, with professional and I, I like uh, this kind of moment uh, to, uh, to when, when I, I'm able to exchange informally. And I said, why, why some engineer, for example, engineer work with billable hours? but they are not stress related to billable hours. When you exchange with engineer, you don't talk about their billable hours. It's not mm -hmm. an, an area of concern, but why? Why when I discuss with the lawyers, it's always a subject of discussions and we discuss about the stress about it. Mm -hmm. The reason is the structure of work organizations mm -hmm. because engineer work by project. And uh, lawyers will be will have the responsibility of a case, and it will be a, he will work alone on their case, you know. So mm -hmm. he will be alone to manage the emotional demand related mm -hmm. to their case, and he will also uh, alone to manage the risk associated to the time that you will be involved in their case and the billable hours and uh, the, the, the expectation related to billable hours. But if we share the responsibility in a team and work in team uh, in a case, I'm sure that we will limit the impact of billable hours. So I suggest to, to revise the organization of work and I think it will be a very important recommendation in the future to implement in some organization. And we will have for sure to work on the destigmatizing uh, mental health issues in the legal professions and implement some action related to this uh, 
improve the access to health and wellness support uh, resources and break down barriers that limit access to these resources. Um, uh, to, for example, by uh, by promote the use of available resources and increase the uh, the willingness of uh, professionals to seek help, but also to to we will have to to work uh, on the perception of confidentiality to increase trust in the law society's uh, lawyer member assistance program. Uh, for example, I, I suggest to remove any question related to wellness in the form when you make your application to the law society uh, to remove the fees on your professional fees when you uh, you you for your license uh, remove all fees uh, on your your bills related to the uh, uh, law society uh, assistance program because I think that if I see this on my bills for sure um, it suggests a proximity between the assistance program and the law society and for sure work on the the promotion of diversity and consider the health of legal professionals as uh, an integral part of uh, the justice systems uh, i don't know if you have the same issues in the united states but in canada uh, the access of justice is a very important subject and Absolutely. the pressure on the system justice uh, have an impact of wellness issues in the profession so mm -hmm. And I, it's interesting to see that in the United States, there's studies done about lawyers and showing that we are the loneliest profession of all the professions out there. And having worked for years with the Lawyers Assistance Program, I was really able to see the detrimental effect that isolation has. And it's because isolation, working on your own can, for a long period of time is really a breeding ground for depression and substance abuse, et cetera. So that really resonated with me. Um, what lessons should the le American legal community learn from your research and are there ways you'd like to see us work together? My for the first part of your uh, of your question, Brie, uh, I think we have three think uh, three things um, are important. The first thing uh, that should be learned uh, from this research is the demonstration of the complexity of mental health in the legal practice. The direct consequence of this complexity is the multidimensional nature of risk and protective factors. Uh, the second thing of uh, this research demonstrated uh, is the dominance of risk factors compared to protective factors. The first reaction when we are managers or as professional association is to invest in resources. For example, in the assistance program, access to psychologists in organization, a better pay, more flexible hours. And this is normal because it's much easier to do. However, the very marginal weight of these resources compared to the risk factor highlights that the only way to achieve a sustainable and healthier practice of law is to act on the risk factor. Work overload, number of hours worked, 
technical stress, the feeling and invasion of technology, work mm. organization, emotional demands. I recently uh, explained uh, this to the law societies in Canada and I using the, the, the metaphor of a float. Imagine you are in your basement and your basement is full of water and a huge wave is coming near your house. If I give you a cup, it will certainly help you, but it won't stop the water from rising. The cup here is the assistance program and the wave is the major stressors that influence the lawyer's daily life. Mm -hmm. the, the, the water in the basement is the cumulative stress from years of practice. So I think we need to keep this metaphor in mind when we take action to avoid uh, acting on the symptoms rather than the causes. Mm -hmm. And finally, the third thing um, that this research uh, has highlighted are uh, explosive cocktails for the practice of law when we observed an overlap of some stressors, uh, intense uh, emotional demands and high expectations in terms of billable hours, high emotional demands and high workload. Mm -hmm. These cocktails must be considered uh, uh, from an intervention perspective in order to limit uh, as much as possible the combination of stressors that have a significant weight in the balance of well-being. And uh, regarding the second part of your question, I certainly dream that the significant progress made in this study could allow us to, to work together. Who knows, uh, maybe by uh, by conducting uh, this kind of survey in the U.S. But to, to compare uh, to compare us, but also uh, maybe working uh, together to develop, uh, for example, a wellness index uh, in the practice of law, uh, uh, an index for which the evolution could be evaluated uh, through uh, a longitudinal uh, survey every three or five years. I think it's important to measure us. Us and to uh, follow the evolution uh, of, uh, of wellness, uh, to, to be proud of the action that we made and we move forward uh, and to evaluate this progression and the, the, the better, better wellness in the profession for sure. Natalie, as we as we conclude, let's let's just spend a quick minute just looking forward. If if we were to have you on the podcast ten years from now, how would you hope the legal profession in Canada is is different, and and what needs to happen to get us there? Hmm, it's a good question. In ten years, mm -hmm. first, uh, I hope it will be easier for professionals to talk about mental health and also more automatic to seek help. Uh, I hope that talking about mental health over the years will have significantly reduced uh, the sense of stigma for those experiencing mental health issues. Uh, I hope a more inclusive and diverse practice of law. And uh, finally, uh, I hope that we will better protect the younger lawyers. First, by better preparing them for what is coming down, but also by taking care of them when they come into uh, the profession by reminding us that they are the future of this profession. And you know, at the end, 
none of these results are the result of a single action or a single stakeholder. It's the result of a dynamic within the legal profession in Canada, but also elsewhere in the world. And we have, uh, if everybody taking action and small action, uh, I'm sure that we, we will, uh, it will be better. Well, Natalie, thank you so much for being here and joining us today. Um, it was such a pleasure to meet you in Canada, and um, I am thrilled to see the amazing work that has come um, in, in Canada since that time. And I'll just say, I hope we can find ways to work together because clearly there are so many similarities between our, our two countries in the profession. And so I wanna thank you very much and to our listeners, thanks for joining us today. Thanks to Chris for my, my co-host, and we will be back to you very soon with additional podcasts to help you and and us find a better way towards well-being in the law. Thanks to everyone. Thanks, Natalie. Thank you so much. Take care of you, Chris and Bree. Thanks.